All right, guys. Next speaker, we have Pastor Dale. Pastor Dale um, has been friends with Pastor Rawl since they were probably knee-high to a grasshopper, right? So he's been the assistant pastor for Pastor Rawl for 30 years. So let's hear it for uh, Pastor Dale. I don't know about knee-high to a grasshopper, but... He and I have been friends for many, many years. 1962, we got together. We were freshmen in high school, and God began a work then that we didn't know God was involved in. I just want to warn all you guys, God's at work long before you think he is. It really is amazing. When he starts in you, he starts before you in your mother's womb. He knows who you are. I, 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 I go so far as to say he knows who you are before you know who you are. And we go through these series of things we try to be. And many of us have made the mistake of trying to be something we aren't. That's one of the worst mistakes you could ever possibly make in your entire life. Even after you become a Christian, trying to be something you aren't. I heard a man say one time, he said, how do we serve the Lord? He says, very important. How we serve the Lord is very important. So when you get ready to serve God, he says, remember this always. He says, don't serve God by imitation. In other words, what you're doing for the Lord. Don't look around to somebody else and find out what they're doing for the Lord. And now I'm going to copy him. Worst thing you can do in your life, really, is to sometimes look at other guys when you don't know what they're really like. You just see them doing stuff, and it seems to garner a lot of attention for them, and it makes them appear to be somebody. And, but, but trust me, guys, you don't know what it's like behind closed doors. You have no idea what's going on in their life. You don't. You don't know. So if I'm not to serve them by, by imitation, how do I serve them? Here it is. You serve them by incarnation. That you serve him by incarnation. In John 15, it says, abide in me and I'll, and I'll do what? Oh, I love the, this is why I like talking to men that come to church, uh, especially for events like this. You're not just Sunday morning Christians. We're going to start in a word of prayer here, and I, and I want that thought in your mind to stay there, that, that what I, whatever I do in this world for the Lord is all that's going to matter. That's all that's going to matter when you stand before God one day. All that's going to matter. All that's going to matter. I, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how many houses you have. What you've acquired, you can have it all. But if you have not done it and given it over to Jesus, it amounts to nothing. And that's what... Jesus said in John 15, he says, with me, with you and I, I'm the, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, if you abide in me and I'll abide in you, then together we can do what? Much. Produce great fruit. You're allowing me to work in you. But go ahead and try it on your own. Go ahead and don't do it with me. Go ahead and think you can work. The worst thing you can do is, and I see a lot of Christians do it, Christian men do it. They want to get creative. They want to get creative. I want to do it a new way. Sometimes I think churches are guilty of this. But then they got to come up with some sort of gimmick to bring people to Christ. <laughs> I've had this happen to me. Some Pastor Dale, can you come with me to the to the hospital. I got a brother. I got a friend. They'll listen to you. They'll listen to you. And, and, and the, the fact of the matter is I got no gimmicks. 
what, I, what I'm going to do to them, you can do to them. And, and guys, tr- you have to trust in God. you got to trust in God that what he says is true. And what you have for people isn't difficult to give to them. Guys, you're all equipped. Every one of you sitting here today, if you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life and you've done it genuinely, you've done it without pretense, you've done it with a willingness of heart for God to use you, he will. You know, the simplest message you can give to him is, and I've done this in death, on deathbeds. I've done it. And people see me, they expect me to get creative or just come in there with some magic words. And I, many times, I did this with one of my best friends. I walked over to his bed. He didn't know the Lord. And I told him this. I said, you're dying. Doctor says you're dying. Dude, your family's outside. They're all crying because you're dying. Then you know what? You're going to die. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And hell is a real place. And why would you sit here? Why would you lie here and not accept Jesus Christ? And you know, that simple message draws them. It doesn't cost them anything. I think you really have to want to go to hell to go to hell. That's how God makes it so easy for us. But we think we need some sort of gimmick, don't we? Need the flash in the pan. You don't, guys, you don't. All you need is Christ in your life. This conference is all about character studies. It's all about great men in the Bible. Nehemiah is my uh, topic. Turn to the Bible, book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to pray. Father God, I pray this uh, morning, Lord, as you speak to us, as you give us direction and guidance, Lord, through these great characters of the Bible. That we lay hold of them, Father, not just with our hands, but with our hearts and our minds. That we learn the application, Lord, that you desire us to have, that we go beyond the fluff, Lord, the, the funny stories or whatever else might be given, Lord, and we go right to your word. And, Lord, your word, Father, would be a light to our path, and it would be bread, Father, spiritually to our lives. And, It would strengthen us and help us through this thing we call life, Father. I pray for any man in this room that's struggling right now. Lord, they they don't have a happy home. They've got a miserable job. Their life is is in despair. And some, Lord, lives in destruction right now. May they find hope and may they find purpose. And may they find, Lord, a reason to, to keep going on and Lord, may they see in Nehemiah, Lord, the answer, Father, that they seek. Father, I pray for every man here that they leave this place changed, different than when they came. That the word, Father, has come alive in them, burns within them, Lord, as those who walked with Christ and knew something was going on, Lord, and their hearts were burning within them as they heard Christ speak. They heard him Lord God, and they felt them. They, they, they walked with him, Father, and their lives were never the same. Now oh, that road to Emmaus, Lord God. May we experience some of that now. Bless us, Father. Guide us and direct us as we come before you in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. One of the, the, the wonderful things Pastor Rawl allows me to do, and I'm, I'm the Jason at Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, by the way. I've been, been with Pastor Rawl since 1962. 
And I'll tell you, the, the book of Nehemiah has special meaning for me because the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah, and it was written by Nehemiah. But how many of you really know about Nehemiah? Well, you, you go to Calvary, so you go to a Bible-teaching church. Maybe you all don't go to Calvary. And I'll tell you what's popular in a lot of churches these days is not to teach so much the Bible, but teach about other things. And, and, and I can't encourage you more than Pastor Rawl did. And I'll tell you this, if, if you're going to read the Bible, read the whole Bible, because you have a hard time understanding just the New Testament if you haven't taken hold of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the Old Testament coming to fruition. You see the prophecies in the Old Testament pointing towards the New Testament? You've got to know what these prophecies are about to teach what's taking place in the New Testament. The, the, the character this morning is Nehemiah. And many of you know Nehemiah, known as the wall builder, the wall builder. But how much do you really know about Nehemiah? He's not the most popular guy in the Bible. He really isn't. And if you take the Bible and just read the book of Nehemiah, he's not really everybody's hero. Nehemiah was a, a unique individual. He was unique in every way, man. He knew how, he, he knew how to get a job done, though. There, there's a couple reasons I think he isn't so popular in the Bible. Let me share with you the first reason. The first reason is his name, Nehemiah, is only found eight times in the Bible, and seven of them are right here in this book. The only other time you see the name Nehemiah even used is in the book preceding it, which is the book of Ezra. He names it one time in one verse, just Nehemiah. He's not in the hall of fame, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Uh, Enoch was, but not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not there. Here, let me go so far as to say this. If some churches, and I know some churches that just stick in the New Testament, I know guys that, that have Bibles, and boy, you get to the New Testament, it's worn out, but the Old Testament untouched by human hands. Is almost afraid to read it. I don't understand it, Pastor. It's just a little difficult. No, it's not. But you, more than likely, what you're reading, you don't like to read. And I tell you, when you read Nehemiah, there's parts of it you don't like. You, you don't. He, he's a staunch man. I mean, he's a, he's a stern man. He's a, he can be a difficult man. Just ask Sam Baddon and Tobiah, who came against them. Just ask the companions he had as he left Babylon to go build the wall. He wasn't an easy man to work for. You get to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah and you find this out, and it's, and it's incredible. You see him beating some guy up and tearing him up and pulling his hair out. That's Nehemiah. Well, you don't read much about him, so hey, you, Jesus doesn't even mention Nehemiah. You know why? He wasn't a priest. The Bible doesn't call him a prophet. You know what he was? He was like you and me, guys. He was like you and me. He was just a man. But he was a driven man. Now, I tell you what, if you want change, and this is all about change, make no mistake about it, the life of Nehemiah, when we read it, we must read it intently, and you must read it from beginning to the end, and you must take it to heart. The first six chapters of the book of Nehemiah are written for this purpose, to show you how to protect what you got. And the second seven chapters are, are rebuilding. He rebuilds the wall, and then the, second, the last seven chapters are about rebuilding the people. But first, the wall. The wall of Jerusalem had been burned down. About a hundred and some years before, 150 years by now, 
You see, the children of Israel were rebellious, and they turned from God, and they began to worship other idols. And a lot of they got their eyes off of God primarily, and God had warned them and warned them and warned them, and they just didn't listen. And what happens? They get taken into captivity. They'd already been divided. They couldn't get along among themselves. So you had the northern kingdom. You had the southern kingdom. And they got taken into captivity like they said they wouldn't. Let me tell you something, guys. The things that you have that are worth anything are at stake right now. What, what, what do you have that you're looking forward to in the future, guys? Those are the things that are precious to you. I know, I know in my life, nothing more precious to me than my family. Oh, of course, my Lord, my God, my Savior. But let's face it, guys, if you really feel fulfilled in Christ, you've got a family that's there for you. And Nehemiah knew that. How, how, what will you do to protect him? What will you do to protect your family or the things that you have that are of the Lord's? And, and it's incredible for me because, you know, I, in a way, I love teaching Nehemiah because I was this man. I, I had to get to a point in my life where I realized all that God had given to me was in danger, was in danger. When I read the passage to you, and we are going to get into it in just a moment, the passage is alarming. I don't know what Nehemiah was expecting to hear when he asked about Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah was born in captivity. His great father, grandfather, was probably taken captive. His grandfather was born in captivity. His father was born in captivity, and he was born in captivity. 170 years now. The, the Jerusalem itself had already been tried. Zerubbabel was sent there. That was about 2 million people, maybe 3 million Jews in captivity. This is an amazing thing. They're in Babylon. And 70 years in captivity, and Babylon is is defeated by the Persians, and the Persians take over, and the king of Persia says, well, it's okay, now I want you guys to go back. He encourages them to go back to Jerusalem because you've got some people over there. The the, the city itself was in waste. And so he sends Zerubbabel, allows Zerubbabel to go back to do what? To build the temple, to rebuild the temple of Solomon, this glorious temple of Solomon that was so important because it's the place of faith. It's the place of worship. And they go back, and and it's a struggle. It it is an unbelievable struggle to get this temple rebuilt. The next to go is Ezra. And when Ezra, in the book of Ezra, which precedes the book of Nehemiah, during the time of this rebuilding of the temple, we see Ezra. And there's another book written during this time, and it's called Haggai. Zechariah and Haggai are in alignment with this. Some of you guys are going, yeah, you know the story. And Haggai says, hey, you're not doing it right. It seems like you got back into Jerusalem and you started building your own houses. You started paneling yourself and making your life easy. But there's things you haven't done. You haven't taken care of the house of the Lord. And by the way, there's no wall around the city. They tried to build a wall around the city before Nehemiah went, and it was an absolute failure. And so all things seemed lost that God had given to them. Here's a warning before we even begin. If you don't take care of what God gave you, God gave you charge of, something's going to happen. 
Something's going to happen. The very first commandment that's given to us is love the Lord. <laughs> very first commandment, love the Lord thy God. First five commandments, just zero in on this. Don't make any other graven image be formed. Don't worship any other. He's God. He's your God. Guys, keep this thought in your mind, please. He's your God. Because if your job becomes your God, if money becomes your God, if possessions become your God, if a bigger car, a bigger house, whatever it is becomes your God, then the wall around your house, your children, your wife is in need of repair. I love this book. It happened in my life. I did. I, I, I started out in 1973 with Pastor Rawlings. He knows this. He, 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 I was one of the guys that were the first of seven families to enter into a, his house, and we stood around in a circle, and he opened the Bible. We started l- learning about God, and we just read the Bible. That's it. He wasn't yet given the gift of teaching. We would go on Saturdays to Calvary Chapel when it was in a tent, and we would listen. Then we would come home, and God blessed Raul. And Raul started to pray for all of his friends. And all of our, well, we had 17 of our friends came to the Lord. And I came to the Lord, and I was his assistant pastor. We didn't really have much of a church, maybe 10, 15 people, but I was the assistant pastor. And God blessed me, and I had a happy family, and I had a wonder. But something happened. I got my eyes off of God. By 1975, my eyes were completely off of God. It was a gradual decline. But I, I, I remember this. I needed, I, I needed a bigger house. I needed another car. I needed a, a boat in my driveway. I needed things that other people had. And so when I was coming to church three, four, five times a week, I started to come to church two times a week, one time a week, and then I wasn't coming at all. And you know the feeling. Then, and you can't see it right away. The wall is gone. God has given you grace, and he's given you time to make changes. But if you don't make changes, guys, if you don't pay attention to that wall, a wall represents protection. A wall, a wall represents security. A wall represents safety. And there has to be a wall around your home and around your children, around your church, around you, gentlemen, there has to be a wall. When you get to the next chapter, I'm only going to go over the first chapter if I have time. If we get to the next chapter, you'll see something. Nehemiah encourages the people to build the wall, and and the people gather together, and they say, let us arise and build the wall. I want to share with you something. You may have the emotion to get up today after you leave this place and to go do something to protect the things that God has given to you, but there's going to be somebody else that says, I'm going to get up, and that's going to be the enemy. Satan is going to say, when you say, arise, let us go and build, Satan is going to say, arise, let us go and destroy. Not going to be easy, guys. And I had let that wall diminish. And before I talk about Nehemiah, I, I want to share with you, this works, gentlemen. This absolutely works. The things that I'm going to share with you about GM, Nehemiah absolutely work in your life. They are time-tested. They are God-given, and they are proven to be true. And it's simple. It was 1980. I, I'd walked away for 13 years to stop going to church, didn't go to church at all. 13 years. I've been married, by the way, now I got a happy ending because I came back to the Lord. I started rebuilding the wall, but 
After 13 years of not coming to church, my wife turns over in bed one night, and I've been married almost 18 years at that time. She says, I don't love you. I could, I could feel the distance create, created between I don't love you. I wasn't leading her in the Word anymore. I wasn't taking her to church anymore. I wasn't protecting my children. What did you think was going to happen? The walls were gone. My children were doing things they shouldn't be doing, and why not? They were seeing me do them. But when she rolled over in bed, because I loved her so much, gentlemen, she had fallen in love with another man. She had fallen in love with another man. It leads me to this. I fell on my knees, not there in front of her. I fell on my knees. You know where I fell on my knees? I got in my car that night, and Pastor All knows this, this is my testimony. I, I got in my car that night. I knew I had done something wrong, and I knew something had to change in my life first in my life, not in my wife's life, not in my children's life, but in my life something had to change. We're going to see it in the life of Nehemiah. I got in my car, and I went to the church that I had avoided for 13 years, and it was midnight. It was midnight, gentlemen, on a Saturday. Who's going to be in that parking lot? Who's going to be there? But you see, God puts you in impossible positions so that you know that all things are possible, right? I stopped looking for someone to copy, and I just followed the word and the voice of God. And he said, come unto me, those of you who are heavy laden, those of you who are weary, come unto me. And the only place I knew, I, I knew in my heart and in my life, I could say, Father, forgive me, but I wanted to go back to the place where it all started. And I went to Calvary Chapel, and at midnight, I'm coming into the parking lot. No other car, no other light. And I see this set of headlights come on. And as I'm entering into the parking lot, our headlights literally meet. And I jump out of my car, and he jumps out of his car, and it's Pastor Raw. And I'm not making this stuff up. As a matter of fact, in my office today, there's a 12 by 12 piece of concrete because last year somebody went and cut it out of that parking lot. And on it, it says that whatever the canker worm eats, the Lord will restore. And I have that. And God restored my life right then. And what did I do, gentlemen? What did I do? Let's go into Nehemiah because this is what I did. This is what I did, gentlemen. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, verse 1, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, they are there, but they're in great distress and in reproach, which means shame. He says, the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And really, it's the result of what takes place when you let that wall go. And the people were in despair. My wife was in despair. My children were in despair. And, and gentlemen, I love them enough to go inquire of God. Everything changed when I started praying. Everything changes right here. How important is Nehemiah now? Let me tell you something. It's more than the pages in the book of Nehemiah. His importance is greater than that. You would have to turn to the book of Daniel in the ninth chapter, wouldn't you? You would. That's why you need to read the whole Bible. Because you see, Nehemiah is the man of the hour. God has his eyes on Nehemiah to help the people, but not just help the people in this fifth century before Christ. 
He's helping us. He's helping you, and he's helping me. And, and many people don't know much about Nehemiah, but I'll tell you what, in my book, if he isn't bracketed with Moses, Moses being the founder of the nation of Israel, if Nehemiah isn't bracketed with him, as important as him, why? Because the nation of Israel was in absolute desolation. And it had, had it not been for Nehemiah, this man who was a layman, Not a priest, just like you and I. Who who does God use? God uses men just like you and me. You don't need to look for somebody to come rebuild your house. God has equipped you to do it. But you got to listen. In the book of Daniel, the ninth chapter, a a time is coming, he says, in the book of Daniel. He begins to speak in prophetical ways. And he says there's 70 weeks that are to be determined. And the first 69 weeks that are so important to us that have already taken place, he says, begin with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. (laughs) Yeah. March 14th, 445 B.C. Nehemiah begins in the year 446. It's going to be Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, that tells him to go build, and that starts March 14th, 445 B.C., and the clock begins to tick. Tick to what? To the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ that takes place at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. How important is it for you to do what God calls you to do? You have no idea. Nehemiah didn't know that God was using him in a monumental way. How important are the lives of your children? What will your children's be, children become? What will your home produce? What about your children's children? We don't think of it in terms these days. Some people don't even see the destruction that's going on. Remember, there were 3 million Jews in Babylon, only 50,000 leave. Given the opportunity to leave, only 50,000. Why? Because they were comfortable. They didn't have any reason to leave. When you see destruction going on in the home, why don't, you, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you get off your behind? Why don't you stop watching the, the football and the baseball and the basketball? Why don't you get involved with your children? Why don't you go back to them today and say, I'm sorry? Why don't you tell your children how sorry you are? You spent more time with your best friend than you do with them. Why do you think they don't love you? Why do you think they don't love you? Because they don't feel loved. I had one woman in my office one day calling in and saying, I'm going to divorce my husband. I'm going to divorce him. I've got to come in there. And she's looking for a reason not to divorce him. And I could hardly find a reason to tell her don't divorce him. She said, she said my husband he won't, won't turn his hand over for me. He doesn't do anything for me. She goes, we have a light over our kitchen. And it's over the sink, and it hasn't worked. My, my, my husband's an electrician. Hasn't worked in years. All he has to do is change the bulb or fix the switch, whatever it is, but it hasn't worked. And she goes, I was washing dishes, and, and I cut myself. A dish broke, and I cut myself because I couldn't see. And she goes, that was the final straw. She goes, we went to bed that night. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. His best friend was on the freeway, broken down. He gets up and goes, helps him. And she says, what are you doing? Why are you getting out of bed? Well, you can call AAA. No, that's my buddy. This is hitting home to some of you guys, I know, because you'll do anything for your best friend, but you won't do anything for your wife. You got something to say, then say it. 
And if the message this, eve, this morning touches your heart, and, and, and it's the beginning of rebuilding the wall around your house, understand that you better be aware that, the, that it's in despair. Because Nehemiah didn't have to do what he did. He didn't have to. He had a cush job. He was the king's cupbearer, a position of authority. He was able to live within the, the courtyard of the king. He had everything going in his favor. But something was different about him. He had to do something. You see, what caused this was his relationship with God. And and guys, let me tell you something. If you're not feeling conviction when conviction should take place, honestly, if you're not, and let me, let me put it this way. If you don't read the warning signs at home, if you get home and your wife's distant from you and your children are distant from you and you're blaming them, understand this. No, the, the reason is deeper than that. You better look at yourself in the mirror. Something is wrong. The first thing I want you to see about Nehemiah, let's call it one of his characteristics he was a man who cared. He, he did care. He, he was different. He, he stuck out in the crowd. God knew him. God, God, God knew this man. Now, what, what does God want to do with you? God knows you, and he knows what you can do. He knows what you can't do, but with him I can do all things. What are you called to do? He was a called man. It wasn't by chance that Nehemiah asked his brother what the condition of Jerusalem was. God called him. Make no mistake about it. God called you. What did God call you to do, Jim? Have you ever asked yourself this question? What did God call you to do? He didn't just call you to come in and sit down in these seats. And in my imagination, speaking to men every single week, I often tell them this. It's like you think that in, on that seat, there's a seat belt. You never get up out of that seat. You never do anything. You come in, you hear the word, you get fat on the word. You know what you should do, but something stops you from doing it. What stops you from doing what you know you got to do? What stops you from even saying you're sorry? When the Bible says if you don't say you're sorry, how can you, how can you petition God for forgiveness when you cannot forgive? That's always amazed me. And by the way, when you say you forgive, and, and many of you men understand this, when you say you forgive, you better, say, you, you better not say the next thing I'm going to say. And this always drives me crazy. And I counsel a lot of husbands and wives. A lot of parents and children, they say they're sorry, but they can't forget. Let me tell you something. If you don't forget what you say you're sorry for, or what you, if you can't forget what you've forgiven, then it's like you buried the hatchet, but you left the handle up in case you're going to need it again. You know, in case your wife doesn't treat you like the God you think you are, and you got this against her. And you want to bring it up. But I thought you forgave me. Yeah, but last night you didn't pay attention to me in bed. And you know what you did. You remember what you did. How do you expect me to feel? And what, really what you're doing is you're demanding vengeance. But who does God say vengeance belongs to? Yeah. You cannot do that. I suggest to you, gentlemen, stop saying, I forgive. 
if you have to attach, I can't forget. Because you can. Or maybe you can in your physiological way forget completely, but you can put it out of mind and out of thought and out of speech. And the more you put it out of thought and mind and speech, the further it becomes to you. And she'll know, and he, your children will know when you've truly forgiven them. Nehemiah was a man who cared, and he cared so much. His concern for others was so great. The Bible says he wept and he mourned for many days. God was showing him. God was speaking to him. He began to pray. Secondly, he was a man of prayer. But he wasn't just simply a man. Twelve times he prays in this book. Twelve times he prays. How many times do you pray? And I'm not counting the time that you pray to eat. And I'll tell you, you'll be able to determine a man's spirituality by not, not how he prays in front of you and me. It was Charles Spurgeon that said it's not the, not, not the, the length of a man's prayer, but it's the content of the man's prayer that makes the difference. Do you want your prayers to make a difference? Do you want your prayers to make a difference? What makes a man of God J.I. Packer said this, what makes a man of God is first and foremost his vision of God. What makes a man of God is first and foremost his vision of God. I want you to understand, when we, when we finish this text and we read the prayer of Nehemiah, and he continues to pray just like this, and you want to learn how to pray, then read the prayers of the Puritans. Read the prayers of these early church fathers. Read the prayers of men who didn't watch TV and didn't have the Internet and didn't have their phones on their, didn't have their Bibles on their phones. But these are men who had stained, tiered Bibles, uh, tear-stained Bibles. Why? Your prayer changes this way. When you have a vision of God in your mind, what is your vision of God? Here's what Nehemiah says. Verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I, Lord, I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Verse 9, so wonderful. But if you return to me, he knew this. And keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, and you have redeemed, that you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. Underline that. Pastor Rawl talked about it. 
This isn't a namby-pamby prayer, gentlemen. This isn't now I lay me down to sleep. This isn't uh, thank you, Lord, for the grub. This isn't that. This is, uh, this is coming from a man who calls God the almighty God. The God who can and will and will always. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. You read the 12 prayers of Nehemiah and you get blown away four things quickly. In his prayer, God had done something to him. God had done, and when you begin to pray this way, you know, you know, you'll never pray the same as you did when God revealed himself to you. You know that epic, epic moment in your life, that epiphany moment in your life? Gentlemen, if you haven't had it yet, I implore you to get on your knees before you leave this place today. If you need a miracle, you're only going to receive it from the almighty God who can and will and always able. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness before you ask for anything else. And here's the thing. Nehemiah wasn't just saying a list of things, adjectives describing God, was he? This is who God was to him. You remember, he remained faithful in a pagan world. He was not your average guy. He remained faithful in a pagan world. All the advantages of the world were there for him, and he remained faithful in a pagan world. And God became real to him. I can only imagine the times that he wanted to do something he shouldn't do, and God helped him. I've been on my knees. I was on my knees with my wife to get her back, to get my children back, to get their respect back. And the wall was built. The wall was built by the stone, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and the walls began to be built in your life. When you apply the integrity, the, the integrity block there, the honesty block, the righteous block, the holy block, the truthful block, when I stop being, uh, a, when I stop hiding things and now I'm transparent, that transparency, that willingness, that kindness, the, 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 the seven gifts of the whole, the, the, When I start applying the things that are good and pure and lovely to this wall, now my family's protected, and and I I wish I had more time, but my, my, my family needed to be protected because on January 21st, 2008, my only son... I thank God that he restored my family and he restored my, my, my daughters and my wife and my son. Because you're going to need to be protected, gentlemen. The Bible says that we live in a lawless world, don't we? And when lawlessness abounds, when lawlessness abounds, the hearts of people grow cold. The hearts grow cold. But he says, but if you endure to the end, you shall be saved. My knees were buckled on that day. I got a knock at the door. My son was a highway patrolman. Six o'clock in the morning, I'll never forget it. As long as I live, my, my world was changed. There's only a few times in your life your world has changed. You're, you get saved, your world gets changed. You have a child, your world has changed. You get married, your world has changed. Lose a child. Go ahead and lose a child. Your world gets changed. And I'll tell you what, if this wall isn't around you, I don't know how people survive it. There were six highway patrolmen. One of them was wearing all the hash, which was his chief. I looked at him, and I I remember I came down, and I I looked at him. I had my robe on. I said, my son's dead. 
his best friend sitting there just crying his eyes. Oh, yeah, he is. Your son's dead. I called my wife down. The house could have been filled with people, but it was just me and my wife. But we were surrounded by the wall. And gentlemen, I'm here to tell you tonight that wall saved me from the worst of anything that could ever happen. Not the way it's supposed to happen. A parent's supposed to bury their parent. A child's supposed to bury their parent. Your parent's not supposed to bury the child, and some of you know this. Gentlemen, we need families rebuilt, and the the rebuilding of that wall like Nehemiah will strengthen your life. And if you leave here today without doing it, then you're no man at all. God bless you.